Hey, this is Mike Nagoda, and you're listening to Talking Blues. Nagoda, what kind of, what nationality is Nagoda? So, we don't know. <laughs> um, uh, uh, my dad's side of the family is like Central European, so Polish Ukrainian. Okay. Um, and but my grandfather, my dad's father, we're not sure where he's from. We know that he moved to like Poland to marry my babcha, my grandmother. Um, but we're not really sure where he's from. He might be from Croatia. He seems to have cousins in Croatia. But so it might be a Croatian last name. It might be a Polish last name. It might be a Ukrainian name. We're <laughs> not really too sure. It's just kind of Eastern Central European within that region of the world. Okay. Because I, when I looked it up, it also mentioned Middle Eastern as a possibility. And, and it almost, in, in some ways, it almost sounds Japanese as well. So I was curious. Everybody thinks I'm Japanese and I am not. <laughs> I, 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 everybody always assumes that. They go, oh, are you Japanese? And I go, no, I am not Japanese. I am far from Japanese. <laughs> well, it does sound like a Japanese name. So, Mike, tell me about your musical journey. I know you started with the piano, um, but, but tell me how you got into music. So, I was always around music growing up with my parents. I came from a musical family. Uh, my mom and my dad uh, led the choir at our local Catholic church. And they're still leading that choir to this day. They haven't stopped. And so I was around mostly church music, sacred music for a very long time. And it was either that or classical music. Um, I was not exposed to secular music until I was about 12 years old, 12 or 13. Very different from most kids. Um, but how I got into playing music is my mom got me started on piano lessons, I guess, because she wanted to prove the doctors wrong because they told her they will that I, they told her that I would never play a musical instrument because I have cerebral palsy. Um, and so I guess she thought, well, I'll show them. <laughs> and so she she's she signed me up. <laughs> for piano lessons when I was six and I struggled and I struggled and I struggled and I, w I went through a very wonderful patient uh, teacher, wonderful woman by the name of Maureen Hickey um, who taught me for years and years and years. And I can't remember what level we got up to. I think maybe grade one or two of the Royal Conservatory of Music. And I did, then I switched to another teacher, uh, Linda Fennell, and she taught me until I got all the way up to grade eight in the RCM wow. and that's where that's where I that's where I stopped so I did I did classical piano for over 20 years so can I ask you um and forgive me for being ignorant but tell me how your cerebral palsy how it affects you sure um it 
So for people who don't know, cerebral palsy is a uh, neurological disability. What happens is when you are born for some reason or another, and it usually happens with premature pregnancy. I was born six months premature. I was tiny. I was like swallowed in the palm of your hand. When I was six born. months premature? Yeah. Wow. I almost died several times, apparently, but uh, I'm still here and kicking. So, um, but yeah, I was a, I, I was a, I was a fighter and a shit disturber from day one. <laughs> but um, so, so, yeah. So cerebral palsy. What happens is when you're born, um, there's a moment where, for whatever reason, there's lack of oxygen to your brain, and that causes brain damage. Um, and so. It ends up affecting, there's a range of disability. So there's people who are um, less disabled and there are people who are way more disabled. When I was born, I was extremely disabled. I couldn't walk. I couldn't crawl. How I got around for the first five and a half years of my life was I scooched along on my belly because I couldn't even crawl. And then when I was five and a half, I was a candidate for an experimental surgery at the time, and it's now become the gold standard for kids with CP. Uh, my type of cerebral, of cerebral palsy is called spastic diplegia. And so certain types of CP will affect one side or more over the other. So some people have it more on their left side of their body. Some people have it more on the right side of their body. I have it all over. And my whole body is spastic and very, 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 very tight. All the muscles in my hands. So when I was five and a half, I had an experimental surgery called a selective dorsal rhizotomy. And essentially they went in and they snipped the nerves in my lower back to release some of the spasticity and tension in my body. And they didn't expect me to walk. And five weeks later, I was walking and the doctors were like, they were fucking shocked. They were just so, sh they, they were so utterly shocked with that. Okay. They so were expecting it. now do you remember this? Like five is a long time ago. So do you yeah. have recollection of one, yep. one, the surgery and then the, the, uh, the fact that you weren't able to walk and then you were able to walk? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I have very vivid memories of going into the surgery i mean i remember during the surgery i had a nightmare about like a billy goat kicking me off a mountain and then i woke up on the operating table uh just like you know kids have weird dreams and then the the, the five weeks later i remember taking my first steps very very vividly so i was at my grandfather's house and he said to me boy get over here come over come over here and i said i don't know i can and he says oh i think you can and my grandfather was like he was like an army sergeant who fought in the second world war like he 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 never made it over to europe but like he basically he got hurt in a training accident where like he rolled down a cliff at a tank and survived Jeez. In, like in, in like newfoundland and he like he got it with like a couple of scratches in the hospital and like my grandmother was pissed at him and was like don't do that to me again but he was he 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 was like this very stern very like authoritarian tough old man 
And he's like, get over here. And I turned to my mom and I said, how do I do this? Like, how do I walk? He's like, move your, your right foot and then your left. And I said, how do I do that? Because I didn't know how to do that. So she had to show me. And I took one step and then another. And then before I knew it, I was across the other side of the room with my grandfather. And then I walked. Then he says, okay, walk back. And then I walked all the way back. Wow. So at that point, do you think, do you know, because um, I don't know how much exposure you would have had to other kids at that point. But did you know that you were different, that you couldn't walk? Or did you know that, like, how were you feeling about things? I don't think before the age of six I knew I was different. Okay. I think uh, with, like, in kindergarten, my teachers and my parents protected me fairly well from ableism and bullying and the outside world. But when I turned six, all of that changed. I was bullied relentlessly for being disabled um, for years and years and years and years. And little kids can be really nasty. How did you deal with that? Uh, not well. Basically the teachers would give them a slap on the wrist or the principal would give them a slap on the wrist and my parents tried to talking to them and the school board wouldn't listen and I got beat up and verbally abused and had all sorts of able slurs thrown at me like spaz and, and retard and all that kind of shit and then when I got older I had a whole bunch of homophobic slurs like i got called a fag and a faggot and stuff and by kids on the schoolyard and i didn't even know i was queer at that point so like all i knew in my head was that like gay is bad you know that was kind of like and plus i like all the homophobic messaging in the church that i received from like my priests and the church community and my my folks i came out of it not having a very good opinion of myself. And because people weren't really listening to me, I was pretty fucked up um, as a result of that and continued to be well into adulthood. And I've only been getting help for it now for like the last five years or so. So I'm healing and I'm dealing with it. But yeah, my childhood was a lot, a lot, a lot. I am so sorry to hear that. Um, that's horrible, but I'm so sorry you had to go through that. So Tell me I. about um, the piano and and having what you had and your mom saying, I'm going to prove them wrong. How? And I know that you said it was difficult, but the fact that you went to grade eight obviously meant that you, you went to a certain level and you were, you were pretty good at playing. How did that yeah. come about? I think my teachers were just, they were sort of a combination of gentle and pushing me just a little, just a little bit. Like my left side is my weaker side. 
So when I play piano, my left hand is not all that active. It's mostly it's mostly my right hand, and usually I'll just kind of hold down chords. And so I can't really do a lot of moving bass lines. So when I would try to play somebody like Bach, where the 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 Alberti bass in like Baroque music is constantly moving and your left hand is constantly moving. That was hell. I hated that. I love box music. I hate playing him for obvious reasons. I, I can't do it very well. But then when I got into the older grades for piano, I discovered Chopin and I discovered Grieg and I discovered pieces where I could just hold these chords and my left hand didn't have to move too much and I might have to stretch and I it might push me but it was just stuff that I preferred so I think I just I think I just preferred the romantic composers to be honest with you because it was just better for my hands and for my body and I could just kind of lean into the chords and get really expressive with it and kind of emote a lot better than anything I could with like Bacher, oh, fucking Muzio Clementi. I hated him. He was my worst He was my worst enemy growing up in classical piano. When did you... I always, I'm always curious. I mean, you had music all around you, so I presume you had some appreciation of music very mm-hmm. early on. Um, tell me at what point do you become appreciative of the music you're playing? When is it not a task that you, you've been given but something that that is part of you, that, that you enjoy doing? When I was in university, when I was about 19, I formed a progressive metal band, and I played keyboards in that band. And that's when I started figuring out things. And I think the first time I found out that there was more to scales than just the harmonic minor or the natural minor, that there was like a pentatonic scale existed or a blues scale existed was one of the kids uh, in my grade 12 class at my prom, I was sitting at the piano and he showed me the C blues scale. And I'm like, wait, what's this? There's like, there's another scale. What is the scale? I don't, I don't know the scale. This isn't in classical music. Where did this come from? Right. And so, um, it, it was a, it was a real revelation to me. And then I suddenly figured at, at that point, I'd started listening to secular music. So the very first secular music I was exposed to were like the only two cassettes my dad had in the car that weren't religious were the Grand Illusion by Styx and Songs from the Wood by Jethro Tull. Wow. That's very, 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 very different. But but I grew up to that. And then when I was 16, I started hearing about Pink Floyd. And I begged my father to get me a best, to let me get a best of Pink Floyd CD. And he was like, my dad was like super religious. He's like, well, I don't, I don't know, Michael. I don't, I don't know. But eventually he, he, he let me go to HMV with, with my allowance money to buy it. And the only reason I bought it was because I'd heard about this band and I heard they were amazing. And I heard that and their name sounded cool. I was a teenager. I didn't know anything. And so I got the best of, it was the echoes compilation. I still have it. And I put it in and I heard the opening chords to 
Astronomy Domine, which is off the first Floyd record, and my mind was just blowing. I'd never heard anything like it in my life, and then I heard all the stuff with David Gilmour, and when I heard David Gilmour play guitar, I was like, oh, what is this? And I heard all these bends and this expressiveness, and I was like, what scales are they playing? So when my friend showed me the blue scale, the light bulb went on in my head and I'm like, Oh my God, that's the David Gilmore scale. That's the Pink Floyd scale. And that's when I started looking into who David Gilmore was influenced by. And he was influenced by BB King. And that's how I heard about BB King was for the first time. So I actually came to blues music through prog rock, which is very, very, very unusual. Um, but then, so after I discovered Pink Floyd, I discovered Deep Purple, who's my other favorite rock band from the 70s. And so I grew up listening to 70s prog rock and classic rock and classic metal. And then I was I was in that progressive metal band for like 10 years until we, it just kind of dissolved. And But in between that time, I really wanted to learn guitar and that's when I became interested around 16. And I started out with just laying it on my lap, tuning into an open chord and playing it with my thumb because I can't play it with my fingers. Sorry, explain that to me. So you, you can't just sit down and have your guitar like how people know how guitars are usually held. No. So you would have to do it more like Jeff Healy. I tried to do it like Jeff Healy and I couldn't. Um, my palsy wouldn't, let me wouldn't let me form the chords this way with the guitar you know in the usual position and it wouldn't let me on my lap and i tried to form the chords like him like everybody when they see me they say you play like jeff healy and i'm like no i don't i don't play anything like jeff healy stop confusing me with him but but did you did you have problems with the keyboards like were you able to play i mean the fact that you got to grade a tells me that you were able to play piano pretty efficiently yeah and that's the thing that was really interesting about it was that you know i figured well if i sit the guitar on my lap and i try to form the chords from the top down with my fingers like jeff did because i knew who jeff was at that point i thought it should be similar to piano this should this should work but it didn't and years later i realized it was because it, when you play the piano, when you form the chords on the piano, and when you try to form the same chords in a similar manner on the guitar on your lap, you're actually using a different set of muscles in your hand. And so for whatever reason, the muscles that got engaged when I played piano like that versus the muscles that I use playing guitar, my body liked one group of muscles and it did not like the other. And... This is also the reason why I can't play uh, finger style with my fingers. I tried and tried and tried. I tried playing with my fingers. I tried playing with finger picks when I took up lap steel. My right hand was like, no, not happening. And so I took up and started playing guitar with a flat pick. And I thought this is how lap steel players, slide players, they, everybody plays with a flat pick, right? And then it was only... Years later, but I learned, oh, no, that's very unorthodox. You're not supposed to do that. What are you doing? You know, and then it's actually very frowned upon within the lap steel um, community and the pedal steel community. And so, yeah, 
when I when I started playing guitar, I just tried to play with my thumb, barring it across on the open tuning, after failing to play it like Jeff Healy. And that only got me so far. And then I started taking lessons with um, a fellow great blues man out of Hamilton by the name of Frank Costantino, who I'm pretty sure you've probably heard of. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and Frank taught me my blues rudiments on guitar for about six or seven years. And then for about a year, we tried the thumb and it wasn't working. And then one day he, he's like, what about a slide? What about lap steel? And I'm like, what is, what's that? What's that? I don't know what that is. And he, he showed me pictures and he, you know, explained what it was. And I was working at a, I was working at a TV station for a summer job in the editing room. And so I had this money from my job and it was right close to where all the pawn shops were on church street in Toronto. And so I walked into McTamney's one day and there was this old Gibson lap steel hanging on the wall. And it was made out of the old Karina wood that they used to make the old flying bees out of. It was like from the early sixties and I saw this thing in my jaw, just like, it was just like, the, it, was, it was like the thing was like shining light and it was like, it was calling my name. But had, had you like, listened to, like, were you, did you have lap steel musicians that you followed by that time or not? Yeah, 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 okay. yeah. yeah. So, like the, so, so like the first huge, big, major influence on me on Slide was Robert Randolph. Um, and he has a large reason why my sound is the way it is. Like I don't really play like a traditional lap steel player in that. Like I did not want to play country, even though I was expected to like, no, I'm not doing that. That, that, that doesn't interest me. But when I heard Robert Randolph and I heard this very overdriven pedal steel and he had all this influence from rock music and blues, and he had that really wild, wide vibrato in his playing. I'm like, what is that? I I need to steal that, and that's where I stole my vibrato from. Was was Robert Randolph, and just like my approach and my sound. Okay, so I, I need to go back a little bit. A couple of things yep. that I have to ask: Why Grand Illusion and Songs of the Wood? Any idea why those two cassettes would have been in it in the dad's car? According according to my father, and I'm an atheist now, so. Don't ask me to understand the religious logic, um, because I don't. Um, but it's connected but, to religion. Yes, it does. So according to my father, he basically, he became a born-again Christian uh, in his early adulthood, and he threw out most of his secular music So because he thought those were of the devil. And then he kept those two cassettes, I think because he said that he thought that they had a quote-unquote positive message. And so he felt that, like, he could keep them because they weren't satanic or something. And this is what he, like, this is what he explained to me when I asked him about it. Like, we used to take car rides up to our property in the summer that, like, my grandfather owned when he was still with us and where I used to go camping every summer. And so my dad and I would take these long trips up and we'd always use used to listen to either songs from the wood 
or sticks or like very bad Christian rock bands. And so I was like exposed to rock music through very bad, like Christian music uh, before I was ever exposed to secular music. Okay. The other question is about when you were in that progressive rock band playing, I presume deep purple or pink Floyd or whatever, how difficult was that for you? Like how was it, how difficult was that to execute being a progressive rock keyboardist? I was actually pretty, I was actually pretty decent um at it um and we weren't covering anything we actually wrote our own stuff and we were a mish a mishmash of various <laughs> influences i was coming from blues and prog rock um our bass player was coming from punk our various guitar players were coming from either like grunge or metal and our drummer had like a rock and a jazz background so it was just this very wide pistache of influences and everybody who heard us said you don't sound like anybody else you guys just sound like you guys which is like the biggest compliment anybody could ever give us sure um we weren't very i don't think we were great <laughs> like when i listen back to our world recordings i'm not i'm not sure we were like good but like there were some nights where like we were on you know and it, it was mostly us goofing off in our vocalist basement for over 10 years and getting a few gigs, but it was a, it was a hell of a fun time. And for me, it was the, that point where it's like, I was trying to get away from classical music and kind of find my own voice as a musician. I think that's what, I think that's where it started. And it's like, even though I was very much like trying to sound like say John Lord from Deep Purple or Rick Wright from Pink Floyd, it was I was still trying to find my voice, so I was experimenting with Hammonds and synthesizers and all sorts of weird sounds. So I was like a kid in a candy shop. Um, and then it wasn't until years later when I met Brian Kober that I kind of went through the same thing with lap steel and slide guitar. Okay, before we get um, to Brian, let me tell you, let me ask you about. I mean, I see the keyboard behind you right now. Is is classical music in your world at all anymore? Do you still play classical or listen to classical at all? I listen to it occasionally. I haven't played classical piano in a very, very, very long time. Um, honestly, that's what my mother wanted for me. It's not what I wanted for me. But I will say that I appreciated it all the lessons because it taught me discipline more than anything else and to basically stick with something and i actually regret actually not get, finishing the rcm and getting my arct uh degree at the end so someday at some point i want to go back and finish what i what i started and i also want to finish all the um the theory programs, I actually, the, the theory courses that I took at the RCM, the grade one and two rudiments, that was the big game changer for me because I, because I took the piano theory and the classical theory. That's how I was able to transfer over to the guitar um, because I was starting to use all my theoretical knowledge of like, okay, well, what builds the chord? What builds the functional harmony for a minor chord or a minor sevens? So when I started 
taking up double slide and figuring that out, my classical piano, all the years of piano lessons actually came in useful. And it became a very easy, it became a much easier transition than how it might have gone if I hadn't had all that. So I think it was there in my life for a purpose. Okay, so Frank says, well, you're not really, I'm not sure if he's saying you're not really getting this, but he says, try the slide. You go on to um, the steel pedal guitar. But then one day you meet Brian Colbert. Tell me about yeah. what, tell me a little bit about Brian. I, I got a chance to see him a couple of times. Um, and I know he played very, a very unique style. But tell me about that day that you went to see him and what it did for you. So how I found out about him was the place that I was taking piano lessons at. There was this kid who was always on before my lesson. Very little boy, maybe about like 12 or 13. I was about 19 or 20 at the time. So during his lesson, before my lesson, his dad and I would always talk and chat and hang out. And he liked a lot of the same prog kind of music that I did. And he said, because he knew I was playing lap steel at that point, which is one slide. And at this point, I was getting very frustrated because I could only play major chords or power chords. And I want to be able to play minors and other kinds of chords, but I couldn't. And Frank and I were kind of just like, what did we do? And we were kind of coming up blank. And so this guy, one day, before my lesson, he says to me, there's this guy who plays at Grossman's on Sunday night, and he plays with two slides. And I thought, two slides? What does that look like? And um, he, next week... He came back, and he actually had a slide made for me out of a shotgun barrel. I've still got it, and it only covers one string. And so when I heard about double slide, I thought what went on one hand and what went on the other, and I thought Brian was doing like a tapping thing, like Eddie Van Halen. Right. And I, I was completely wrong. And so I begged my dad to take me to Grossman's when I was 19 on a Sunday night, and my father being my very religious father and being very protective of me, he's like, I don't know, Michael. Grossman's is a dive is a dive bar. It's a really seedy place. I don't know if you want to go there. And I was like, please, Dad, please, Dad, please, Dad, take me. He's like, okay, fine, but I'll but I'm coming with you. So we walked in. I'd never been in a bar in my life, let alone a dive bar. It was I was terrified. I was very green. I was 19. It was super sketchy. I'm like, what is this place? What is this place? And then I sat down. We got there before Brian and his band, the Nationals, set up. And I, I still cannot, words can't describe Words can't describe how amazing it was to see Brian play for the first time. So the first thing I'll say was I was completely wrong about my conception of double slide guitar because what was really going on was Brian had a modified steel bar, um, the kind that the, the lap steel players or the pedal steel players were holding their hands. Um, but he had a modified version where... Um, you've got a tube slide welded onto it so you can actually stick it on your middle finger. And then that leaves his thumb free. And his thumb is where he puts on the double slide, the secret weapon. So that thumb slide covers 
three extra strings. And I later found out that when I asked Brian what tuning he was in, he was in, he said, I'm in open E tuning. And I'm like, oh my God, that's the tuning I'm in. And so it was, it was just a happy coincidence. And so I, when I watched him play, he was getting all the chords that I had been trying to get for well over a year at this point. And, and, I, and are you like, when you're watching it, do you like, do you get it? Do you think, yeah, okay, this is the way it works. I can make it work. Like, does it come to you that quickly? My jaw dropped. And at some point during that night, I said to myself, that's exactly what I want to do for the rest of my life. It changed. It was a game changer. It changed everything. Because I'd wanted to play electric guitar since I was a teenager, since I was 13, 14, you know. Um, yeah even though I didn't really know what blues music was when I heard the sticks record or the Jeff Tall record, I just loved the sound right. of the, like uh, uh, of the electric guitar. I'm like, I want to play that. I don't want to play piano. I want to play, I want to play that. And when I saw Brian play, it was like, Oh my God, that's it. That's it. That's how I do this. And my job must've been on the floor the whole night. And then Brian finished his set. I came up to him. I told him I played lap steel. He got so excited. He got really, 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 really excited. Um, because they hardly, I guess that he hardly ever got lap steel players at the jam. So he got me up on stage with the nationals and all I could play in was E at the time, because that's what my guitar was tuned to. And he's like, you, can you play an A? I'm like, no, I can't do A. I can only do E. So I think we did like Sweet Home Chicago. We tried to do Rocky Mountain Way by Joe Walsh, but as I soon found out, Brian hates the Eagles. So he stopped the song halfway through and said, okay, that's enough of that. Um, even though I love, even though I love Joe Walsh, um, admittedly, that's, that's the one area where I think Brian and I had a bit of a different taste. <laughs> In music, and I think we did like uh, Sky is Crying by Elmore James was the last one, but we did it in E instead of A. And see, and then afterwards, he's like, you see, Mike, this is what the double slide allows you to do because you can play in any key you want and you don't need to retune. You don't need to have like five or six freaking lap steels that you carry around, which is very impractical for gigs and stuff. And you don't have to do how most like lap steel players will get their minor chords is they'll slant the bar, right? So that it's on a diagonal or an angle, like backwards or forwards. And I tried doing that. And my palsy said, uh-uh, no, you don't. That's not happening. We're not going there. And so I couldn't. And the, this was the big, 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 big game changer. And so eventually, after about doing lap steel, traditional lap steel for about a year. The guitar player who I just invited into my metal band happened to be a welder. That's what he did for his, his day job. I told him about Brian. He came with me. He came down to Grossman's. He met Brian. He told Brian, because, and Brian was looking at getting a pair of, an extra set of slides made for himself anyways. So as a thank you for letting him join my band, uh, my friend 
uh, Andrew made me my pair of slides and he worked with Brian. Brian showed him how they were constructed. We fitted them to my hands. And I remember we were in his garage at like midnight one night and he was just welding away and it was very unsafe and and just like sparks flying everywhere. But it was just kind of like, you know, very DIY. And so as a result, I know people can't see this because they're listening to audio, but this is, this was the result wow. as you can see here. And um, so that that's how that got made. And then Brian found my thumb slide from like a piece of pipe he found on a train track because sometimes he would go out to train tracks to find weird pieces of metal that would make really good slides. Brian was kind of odd like that. Like he was a bit of a country boy. So he would just go out and just do shit like that. And it was like the perfect thumb slide. Um, and that's how my slides got made. And I think before that, I would like try to construct a pair myself using like a brass slide and like a really heavy uh, piece of chrome brass, which didn't work out very well. But I remember the first time I came up on stage to Grossman's at the jam with the two slides and Brian got shocked. And then um, uh, Paul McNamara, Brian's bass player, turns sees me with the two slides and he goes whoa and then bill hennefine who was on the drum says you're seeing double <laughs> and so and so i i finally got up the courage to go up there with the double slides after kind of just working it out by trial and error with frank how to get the minor chords and then I, that was about after i'd been with frank for about six or seven years so that was the point where frank said i think we've taken it as far as we can take it and I think you need to take lessons with Brian. And that's kind of when I made the switch over to Brian as my mentor and my teacher. And I asked him to like formally teach me. How long did it take for you to feel comfortable playing? I mean, obviously, because you had your chops with the piano and you knew how to play music at a certain level. How long did it take for your guitar playing to get to a level that you were comfortable with? Are we say by comfortable? Do we mean like where? Do we mean we're like I'm getting good at the instrument, or do we like? Do we mean we're like I'm not struggling with it? No, like that you're good with it. I wouldn't say. In, people would disagree, but I wouldn't say I got there until after Brian passed in 2016. It took me a really, 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 really long time. I think when I when I released my first record parliament in 2014, I was decent at it. But I think after Brian passed away, that kind of lit the fire underneath my butt. And that's when I got like super, like I was serious about it before, but I, I realized, Oh shit, I have a legacy to carry on, you know? Um, and that's, so I think that kind of drove me to, yeah, to, um, really get really good at it so i i would say it took it probably took me about oh i have to think about i actually have to think about this now um maybe 12 years 13 years okay so getting good and competent at the guitar to do what you hope to do that i guess i would think that you have an idea in your head and you want to execute it is one thing but the, the other thing is actually writing your own songs 
yeah which you have done for your albums now tell me about that transition was was writing songs an easy thing for you i don't know it's like i don't think i really thought about it i think i just sort of did it to be to be to be honest with you i didn't really give too much thought to it um I think at that point, Brian had been mentoring me for several years. And I only ever took about like three formal lessons with him. The rest of my mentoring was all on stage at Grossman's of just like watching him like a hawk. And he would turn to me and he would say, it's this chord right here. And he'd show me and I'd have one second to get it. And if I didn't get it too bad. And so <laughs> it was really the school of hard knocks. And like he would, he would, I remember he would run me through the shittiest, transistor amp this this horrible tinny little amp and everybody sounded like crap through it but he'd run it through me on purpose so i couldn't hide behind distortion or overdrive or pedals because brian was brian famously hated pedals and he would frown on me every time i brought out a tube screamer or something like that and he's like he's like you need to learn to play the instrument not play the pedal and he was i years later i finally got what he was talking about but he'd run me through these shitty amps and forced me to play clean and forced me to play accurate and he'd give me shit about palm muting in my right hand because in lap steel one of the hardest things about it is you have to mute with both hands at the same time in order to get a good clean consistent sound so that your extra so that any unwanted strings aren't sounding and for somebody who has palsy that's really tough like my right hand has so many spasms all the time it's constantly bouncing up and down so to keep it like down, like an anchor on the strings, I still struggle it with it every day. Um, but Brian really, he worked me. He really, 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 really worked me. And then at some point when I got halfway decent at it, I was playing a computer game called Fallout 3, which is about a post-apocalyptic United States. And at some point I thought, Nobody's ever done post-apocalyptic Canada before. I should write an album about that. I should write a blues rock opera about that. And I'll make my first record and it'll sell millions and it'll be great. And of course it barely sold anything. Um, but like, because you know, you're young and you're full of piss and vinegar and you have all these wild aspirations and you have no concept of reality when you're in your twenties, you think you're like on top of the world, right? <laughs> And so I just, I just like, I had enough confidence. It's like, I've got the theory training. I'm decent at guitar. I'm pretty good at piano. Hell yeah, I can do this. Like I, like, like, like I was, I was 26 or 27 and I just, I just started writing and it would, it was like, I would, I came up with like a riff. Like the very first thing I think I, think I came up with was, the main riff for Parliament got bombed. And then I couldn't come up with the rest of the song. And then six months later, when I was at my uncle's place for Christmas, all of a sudden the chords came to me. And so it would be rather sporadic until one day, I remember there was like a week where like I wrote five songs in a week and they were all really decent. And I would just have like bursts of creativity. And I realized oh, um, uh, I realized, oh, 
I guess I've got enough to make a record. I should probably go make a record. Now, at this point, Baco, I should say I was at York University for biblical studies, um, secular biblical studies, and I had and I had dreams of becoming a biblical studies professor oh. in, in the Hebrew Bible and the Ugaritic languages and all the ancient Semitic languages. And but I was slowly becoming aware that I was at the wrong school for this. I should have been at U of T and it was going to take another 10 years of undergraduate, like uh, part-time courses in languages to get the undergraduate language prerequisites in Hebrew and Aramaic to go do what I wanted. Now I'd already been at York for like 12 years at this point as a part-time student. So I was feeling really burnt out and I thought, what do I do? You know? And like one of my Hebrew Bible studies professors, Professor Ehrlich, he said to me, you know, um, take a year off, take a sabbatical. At this point, I just got married and I'd, um, I was like, okay, I'll take the year off. And, you know, I thought about it, and that was probably around like 2011. And the class in which I, um, was taking ancient Greek in one of my classmates said, you should meet my daughter, Natalie. She has a recording studio, um, in, uh, the East end. And I said, Oh, okay. So Michael Beaupre put me in touch with his daughter, Natalie. And I went and I met her and it was up above this little carpentry shop on Eastern Avenue. That's like no longer there. And, um, it was like, I guess in like somebody's attic on the roof. Um, and it was like a studio slash jam space. And, uh, Natalie, uh, I played her a couple of songs. She liked them. And she was basically at the point where she was just trying to build up her, resume as an engineer so she like you know didn't charge me much of anything and i'm like well i need money to make a record so i i was a very bad boy and i took all the bursary money that i'd just gotten from from like the university and i used it to make my first record (laughs) york is probably going to be very 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 disappointed with me and then a couple months later when we had after rehearsals and we get like five weeks to rehearse and it was just very chaotic and very scrambling. I told my parents I'm dropping out of university and becoming a musician. You can imagine how well that went over. <laughs> but at that point, this is what you wanted to do. This was now your new goal. Yeah, this was now, this was now my new goal. I, I realized the, the, the biblical studies thing was, it was a pipe dream, you know, and I wasn't going to get anywhere with it. I was probably going to end up being miserable. And I just, I realized how much joy playing music and playing double slide and playing guitar was, was really bringing me. Did you have a sense of what becoming a full-time musician would be? And did you have an idea of what you wanted to get out of that? Like, the, what was the goal? What did you think you would hope to be being a full-time musician? Well, originally, I wanted to be a session player and be a session guitarist. And 
how I started doing the cross genre thing that I'm that I'm known for in my music is that was done on purpose on my first record to try and like show versatility as a musician so I could get session work. But as I soon found out, well, double slides not really in calls for for session musicians. As Brian and I, Brian and I used to joke that we're an endangered species of two. <laughs> Um, now one, um, but, uh, yeah. So to answer your first question, I had no fucking clue what being a full-time professional musician meant. I was so naive. I thought I was going to tour everywhere and sell out stadiums again, like delusions of grandeur that we get in our twenties. Okay. So once you realize that you're not selling hundreds of thousands of units of your parliament album that you're not getting stadium gigs what does that do to you what when when you had these dreams and it doesn't happen what are you thinking i'm disappointed and at the same time i'm really happy doing what i'm doing like I, I, I uh, at that point, I was a subway musician with the TTC. So I was going out every day to busk. And that, that, that busking, along with playing with Brian every Sunday, that really honed my craft. Um, when you just play alone in a subway with just yourself and a resonator. And with a resonator, you can't really palm mute. So it's very honest. Like I've got a national steel guitar. And it's very honest with me. It lets me know when I'm messing up. Uh, same with the Telecaster. That's also a reason why I play a Telecaster is because tellies are honest and they won't bullshit with you. Um, and so that really helped me build my chops. But at some point I realized, you know what? I'm really enjoying this. I'm making people happy. I'm doing what I love. I'm sure that if I keep going with this, Maybe I won't sell stadiums, but I'm pretty sure that like I can get a career in music doing what I love and being happy with it. And I'd much rather be doing this than working a nine to five in an office somewhere every day and, you know, doing like soulless work. I did that one year for a summer job and I hated it ever again. Never, ever, ever again. Okay, so then you say, I'm going to record another album. It takes you seven years. Is that correct? Seven bloody fucking years seven years yeah. because why ah uh, well it's because i had some money and then i had enough money to do four days and i'd met my producer chris burkett after he saw me play it at uh lou dogs on king street which is no longer there with my band he like we warmed up with bb king and he was like, let's make a record together. He was so impressed with my double slide technique. He'd never seen anything like it. And he's like, let's make a record together. And so I'm like, sure. So I got enough money together to record about four days with the bad, bad tracks in the studio. And then I ran out of money. And then I realized, oh, shit, I need to apply for grants. But I didn't know how to write grants. And it took me... four years to get my first grant and I did the uh, overdubs in 2019 and the bed tracks in 2016 
And actually, the last day on the bed tracks that we did the bed tracks was the last day I got to see Brian before he passed, mm-hmm. uh, about maybe a month before he passed away. Um, and I, I, I used his old Gibson acoustic in the studio. And then after he passed away, he willed me Brownie, his old Telecaster that he was really well known for playing that's on the front cover of my record. And that was him. That's like his soul. Like he, he fucking toured and pioneered double slide guitar on that guitar for over 40 years and went through hell and back with that guitar. Like he, Brian was very much, he was like my dad to me. He was like a second dad to me and he was, he was family to me and he meant the world to me. So I think when he passed away, it was a real blow. It was a huge, huge shock and a huge like crash to my life. And I think I just started, I became really depressed after he died. And even though I had this fire lit underneath my butt, I was feeling burdened. And I think I still do in a sense, because I think I'm expected to carry on his legacy, which I'm happy to do. But I think people, they come up to me and they're like, you sound just like Brian or you play just like Brian or they expect me to be him. And I have to explain to them that I'm not, you know? And so I'm, I'm finding these days I'm trying to, again, I'm trying to find a way to get out from somebody else's shadow to find my own voice and express myself. And I think, and I think I'm still on that journey and I'm on that process in terms of where I am and I think the one thing that I know about myself in making music is that I never do anything anybody expects. I always do something very unexpected and something very untraditional. And even if I do traditional blues music, I'll do queer blues music and put my own twist on it and just do something wildly unorthodox because that's just me. And I think... I think I, you know, really took that spirit from Brian where he just carved his own path and he did it his own, he did it his own way. And he was his own person. And he he told me so many times, he's like, I'm so glad that you don't sound like me because the last thing I want is for you to be a clone of me. I want you to sound like you. I like that you're different from me. And so that really meant the world to me. And that really encouraged me. And so I think when I kind of feel like I get stuck in his shadow a little bit from other people's expectations. I remember what he said to me and I kind of like, nah, you know, this is other people's, you know, problems. I got to let them go and go do my own thing, wherever that is and wherever my heart takes me. And I'm pretty sure no matter what I do, wherever Brian is, he's proud of me, you know? Well, then you you also think, I mean, just the fact that you are carrying on his tradition. And, you know, obviously you're going to sound like you more than you're going to sound like him. But the fact that people are reminded of him because of you, I think, speaks volumes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, it does. I mean, what, a, what does. an amazing tribute that you, you, you're playing gives to people if, they, if they're if they reminded of Brian. Because nobody else played like Brian. And you're probably the only other person who plays like Brian. So, But I can understand how you would feel that way. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think it's part of the grieving process. 
which I'm still going through five years on mm-hmm. after losing him. He was just an enormous influence in my life. Like never did I think when I started playing guitar that I would get to take on somebody else's musical legacy and carry on a completely new, a completely new, not just a new style of playing, but Brian, inv- Brian invented a new instrument. Like that's the thing that a lot of people don't realize. It was what he did was so revolutionary because before him, the lap steel was in the back of the band. The slide guitar was in the back of the band. It was, uh, it was, uh, an instrument that maybe occasionally did some fills and stuff, but it never really got the spotlight. Never really, you know, was anything you could be a front man with or a front person with, I should say. And Brian changed all of that. He blew the doors wide open and he didn't know what he was doing. He didn't have a background in music theory. Like when he met me, I would give him lessons on music theory. Like he would ask me the difference between an augmented and a, and a diminished chord. And I've still got recordings from my very first lesson with him where we're fighting over the, over what constitutes a diminished versus an augmented chord. And I'm actually teaching him. And it's, it's, it's really funny to me to listen to that recording now, looking back on it. Um, but uh, like he didn't have the theory. So he figured all that stuff trial and error he might not have known what the chords were called or what he was doing theoretically but he knew the instrument and like when i think about it and i just think about the intricacies of like the only reason i've been able to get as far on double slide with it as i have is because of my theory background so like i know like what like what builds the chord and what's going to connect the chords like i've started doing voice leading and stuff and all my all that all those piano lessons are coming in very very useful but Brian had none of that. So he was in a much more tougher and difficult position than I'm, than I'm in. Like I have the advantage of learning from him and watching him and seeing the shapes of the slides. He had no one to watch. He had no one to learn from or mentor him. He had to figure it out all by himself. And that blows my mind every time i think about it he was an absolute genius for sure really really and truly um mike i'm gonna have to wrap this up but i want to say what a pleasure it was to talk to you and meet you um i know that in 2020 you won the tbs talent contest yep your new album outside the box just came out tell me my last question to you is now, a few years older, a few years more wiser, what are your goals at this point? I'd like to be able to tour Canada, at least. I don't know if the virus is going to let me. I'm very high risk for COVID. I can't even go up and play bars like most musicians are doing nowadays. I don't have that privilege. Um, Both my partner and I are very high risk. So I have to be extra careful and super safe. And so all I can really do right now is like outside festival gigs in Ontario and that's it. So I'm, I'm, I'm crossing my fingers and I'm hoping that 
the virus will mutate just enough where it gets about as deadly as the flu, you know, because I don't think it's going to get any less deadly than that. But I hope it's it gets down to about there so I can start touring places and touring Canada and getting outside Ontario, maybe even going to the States eventually. Um, but I, I'm sort of in a position right now where I know what I'd like to do. Um, and I'd like to be able to just release albums and make my art and tour and make a nice living off it and make people happy. But because we're sort of in the uncertainty of the pandemic and the virus, all bets are off. So I don't know if reality is going to let me do it or not. I hope so. But I'm sort of in a very unpredictable place right now because of the way things are. So I have hopes and I have dreams. Whether or not reality lets me see those dreams to fruition, I'm going to have to wait and see. Are you constantly writing? Yeah. That's the one thing I have been doing during the pandemic is I have been constantly writing new material. I've been doing a secret project in my office here. Um, I'm not telling anybody what that's about. I've been, all I'll say is that I've been learning how to record and produce, and I've been renting microphones and figuring out how to record my ad and basically how to mix and stuff. So I'm working on it. Um, and I'll say I'm really happy with how it's turning out. So it's going to be a big surprise or, or for people who know me, maybe it won't be. And I'll, 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 I'll leave it at that. Okay. I'll leave it at that. I don't want to say too much more. Mike, thank you so much for doing this. It's a real pleasure meeting you. Um, you're an impressive person. And um, I hope that one day our paths will cross, not in the too, too distant future. Yeah, Marco, this was an absolute real pleasure. And really thank you for for having me on. When I saw all the people you interviewed, I was like, what's he want to talk to me for? He's interviewed Steve. He's interviewed Steve fucking by. Like, like I only have my second record out. What is this? You know, so I was like, I was thrilled. And this has been an absolute pleasure. So hopefully when my next record comes out or like after that or whatever, we cross, we, we cross paths again and we talk again I, i've really loved the last hour so thank you so much thank you you're welcome